0: Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged encouraged and moved closer toward the gospel by this week's message. It's the second week of Epiphany, the Epiphany season, and we read this morning just now, Lisa read, the story of Philip in John 1. Philip's words to Nathaniel, come and see, We're in John 1 if you want to follow along. Come and see. That's really what Epiphany Epiphany is all about. Come and see Jesus as the light of the world. Come and see his glory. Come and see who he really is. As a season for really anyone and everyone to consider him and his claims. I worked very, very hard this week to kind of coalesce this scene into one sort of big idea, as the preaching books tell me to do, and I failed miserably. So instead, I'm just going to invite us to come and see Jesus as we walk through this scene kind of sequentially together and just dwell on a few poignant moments in it and see what the Lord has to speak to us through it. So beginning in verse 43, let's, let's just walk through this passage and observe what we can observe. Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and then finding Philip, he said, follow me. Can anyone tell me what else you know about Philip? What's Philip known for? No? No? Two different people. Thanks for, thanks for giving it a, a try. Anyone? Yeah, the, the silence is lingering because no one knows anything about Philip. <laughs> you know, Philip the Evangelist is different than Philip this Philip. So um, those are two different people, I believe. Yeah. But maybe. Somebody to fact-check me on that. Point is, is, we don't know a lot about Philip at all. In fact, mostly he's from the Gospel of John. That's, the other other Gospels have him in lists. the Gospel of John, he shows up twice, and both times he's asking semi-questionable questions, and he shows he's a little behind the curve theologically. And that's kind of the point. And as far as we're concerned, like, Philip is utterly average, utterly unremarkable in the story. And yet, he's the only apostle we read of whom Jesus actually goes out and finds. So Jesus calls different apostles, but we read here, finding Philip. As if Jesus woke up that morning on a mission, I'm going to find this average Philip and call him to me. Do you ever feel average? Um, I don't like this about myself, but whenever I, whenever I gather with a lot of other pastors in the same room, I feel insecurity starting to bubble up a little bit. Maybe they have PhDs. You know, maybe they've published amazing books. Maybe they seem to be parenting to perfection, and comparison starts to come up a little bit. I don't know what happens to you when you gather with 12 of your peers maybe at your workplace or around other parents or, or whatever it is for you, but you ever feel like other people around you are superstars like Peter, James, and John? They, they seem to get all the headlines. <laughs> Remember, Jesus finds Philip, average Philip, asking awkward questions, limping, limping along in the background of the story. Jesus seeks out normal people. That's the first point I want to make. People like you and me, people who aren't necessarily heroic, who don't necessarily have it all together, who tend to show up in the footnotes of someone else's story. Well, then what happens? Look at the second movement of this scene in verse 45. So, Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, "We have found him whom Moses and the Law and the Prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph." And then Nathanael asks him, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" And Philip responds, "Come, come and see." And this second movement I want to dwell on for a minute. Notice how being found by Jesus leads Philip to immediately find a friend. Nathanael isn't buying it so easily, though. Why is Nathanael not buying it? Nazareth. Nathanael's town of Bethsaida was near Nazareth on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So if you grew up in a small town, any of you grew up in small towns? Anyone? Did you have a small town rivalry with a town next door? Of course you did. Yes, that's how small towns work. That's how they worked back in the day. It's still how they work. Pella Christian and Pella Public School. As far as I was was concerned, the kids at Pella Christian were like alien life forms who didn't exist in my small town of 10,000 people. There's this rivalry. You know, which town had better architecture? Which town had better education? Which town had better fishermen? So it wasn't just that Nazareth was an insignificant blip on the radar of the Roman world, which it was. You know, um, to put it in context, we might say Nazareth was dueling banjos country. You know what I mean? It was that, but it was also this competition between, between towns. Important people were expected to come from important places. Jerusalem, perhaps, or Rome, of course. Is it, is it possible that you and I miss the thing that God is doing or calling us to today because of our own biases, because of our own presuppositions? We think God... God couldn't really call me to love my enemies, to love them. Do you know who they voted for? Of course, some of our beloved friends and neighbors won't consider the claims of Jesus at all because of presuppositions. They might say something like, if there is a God, he wouldn't come to a particular Jewish, you know, as a particular Jewish person in history, to a particular ancient town in the first century, claiming to be the way and the truth and the life. That doesn't seem fair. But what if he was? And, and what if he did do that? Would you be willing to actually consider it and let God confront your biases, your presuppositions? So to be found by Jesus, we need to be willing to let him confront and correct our biases, as we see in this story. Because he didn't choose Jerusalem. He didn't choose Rome or Washington, D.C. He chose first century Nazareth. A, a, a low-status, unwed, impoverished girl in Mary, He chose a family that could barely afford the temple sacrifice, choosing the two young doves, the the sacrifice that the poor would offer rather than the more preferable lamb. He chose the working class, a carpenter. So what do we learn here? We learn that Jesus comes not only to the normal people, like Philip, to the average people. He comes especially to the humble people and places of the world. You know, sometimes I think I need or even expects to be sort of dazzled by God, you know, I'm going to find God in the popular and in the, the predictable and in the powerful people and places. I'm going to be overwhelmed and dazzled by these big experiences, but do we have eyes to see God at work in the average people, in the average places, the broken people, the humble places of the world, in the Phillips and then the Nazareth's of our lives, in forgotten people? You know, in the hard and needy places out there, but also in here? Do we believe that God comes even to the Nazareth, so to speak, in, in us? Dirty places, forgotten places, broken places. So Jesus coming to Nazareth, I think it reminds us that life is not a Marvel movie. Um, we are not superheroes flying from one victory to the next. There is, a, there is an earthen nitty-grittiness that stains our lives with complications and with discouragements and with failures. And that is the reality into which Christ is born. He is in the, he's in the daily grind of ordinary, average, humble life. I love reminding us of the old rabbi's words when someone asked him, why can't I find God? He answered, because you're not looking low enough. Well, what happens next? Undaunted by Nathaniel's resistance, Philip simply invites him to come and see. And here we have the intimidating, daunting idea of evangelism, sharing our faith, made very simple. You know, not unnaturally and awkwardly, like, arguing and convincing people, but just testifying non-anxiously to the reality of Jesus in your life, inviting your friends to come and see and encounter him as you have, Well, Nathaniel, to his credit, obliges. And here we see the, the third movement in the story. Comes with Nathaniel's response, sorry, Jesus' response to Nathaniel. Jesus sees Nathaniel coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Some very old translation says, in whom there is no Jacob, which we'll get to in a minute. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, notice first that Jesus doesn't rebuke Nathaniel's honest skepticism. He praises it. I mean, sure, Nathaniel had expressed some amount of prejudice in his skepticism. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? We all bring our biases. We should expect no less. The, the question is, what are you going to do with those biases and presuppositions? You know, it's been, it's been well said that honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. Honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. So Nathaniel is a skeptic, but he's an honest one. He's willing to actually follow up on this claim. And Jesus sees that and he celebrates it. He says, you tell it like it is, Nathaniel. There's, There's no guile in you. There's no deceit in you. And in saying this, Jesus hints at what we'll make clear in a moment. He draws our attention to the story of Jacob, which we heard read this morning. Jacob, of course, was known as a deceitful, kind of shifty guy, he deceived his brother Esau out of his birthright, famously, and then he was on his run for, uh, on the run for his life, and eventually he is transformed by an encounter with God in which he wrestles with God. He's transformed from Jacob, the deceiver, into Israel, the one who honestly wrestles with God. So Jesus looks at Nathanael and knows that his skepticism arises from his honesty. He calls it like he sees it, but he's not entrenched in his biases, He's not even unable to even consider the truth that might confront his presuppositions. So if you find yourself naturally a skeptic, take heart. You know, God, God welcomes our honest questions, our honest wrestling, our honest engagement with him. If we'll, if we'll wrestle with him, that's the invitation. Just remember that honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. So Nathaniel's straightforward response to Jesus is this. How do you know me? How do you know me? And then Jesus displays this this miraculous knowledge that changes everything for Nathanael. He says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael goes from skepticism to wholehearted belief, rattling off this litany of amazing titles for Jesus. Why? Well, for ancient Jews, the fig tree was a rich symbol, often associated with prayer and with meditation. Why? Because a warm and sunny climate where you could be outside a lot needed some shade to be cool. Well, a fig tree would provide ample shade in a warm and sunny climate. And so many people would go under the fig tree and read and study Torah and pray. And so we don't know for sure what Nathaniel had been doing, maybe studying and praying, maybe opening up his heart to the things of God. Whatever he was doing, Jesus sees him. And he says to him, Nathaniel, I saw what you were doing when no one else was around. Well, what do we learn here? When no one else is looking, God is. Don't we, rehearse? we just rehearsed it. We just began our service as we do every week. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. In Psalm 139, which we, which we sang and which we read, you have searched me, Lord. You know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. What's significant about sitting down and rising? Well, not necessarily a lot. He knows the insignificant and the significant things of our lives. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Now, is that supposed to be terrifying or comforting? In the psalm, I think it's not entirely clear. I think for the psalmist, it's a little bit of both, honestly, because the light of God's knowledge both strips. Out. Remember Luke shared a couple weeks ago? Was that last week? A couple of weeks ago. Talked about like when you get in front of the mirror and all those bright lights are in your face and you just think like, oh, what happened to me? Just Light can expose us, strip us, make us feel vulnerable and exposed, but it can also warm us and comfort us and remind us that we're not alone in the dark, and that we're never unknown. Well, I think Nathaniel's question is similar to the one every human being has. Am I known? Am I known? And the Bible's answer is a resounding, yes, you are known intimately by God in every circumstance of your life. In the end, I don't think it's just any old, just super, it's not that like this, this knowledge was just supernatural that Jesus displayed, it's that Jesus displays specific knowledge and Nathaniel feels deeply, intimately known by Jesus. So Pastor Chris McDaniel notes that it's striking that, that Jesus could have said, I saw you when you were screwing up and many of us maybe relate to God that way. Like we think he's only just looming over, ready to point out the ways we, we didn't quite measure up. But of all the things Jesus points out, he says, I saw you when you were opening up your heart to God. And of course, he had had moments in his life that were low, where he was running from God, where he was sinning and screwing up. But Jesus says, I saw you in this beautiful moment in your life. I think we need to see in this that God looks graciously upon us. We're not def- you are not defined by your worst moments, you're not. He is eager to celebrate the small victories of your life. And of course, we now have the cross between our sins and and God's eyes. Yes, his knowledge of us is complete, it's exposing, but thanks be to God, so is the work of the cross. And this frees us to be known entirely without being defined by our failures. We don't need to be afraid of his light. His light can warm us and comfort us rather than just expose us. So this week, I shared some struggles that were heavy on my heart, um, both with the staff and with my gospel friendship group, a group of two close friends, two brothers. And just in sharing, you know, none of, them could, none of them could fix anything, really, that I shared. And yet, it did sort of fix something, just merely by listening. Why? Because I felt known. That's it. Um, you know, because I felt known by people who just reflected the gracious gaze of Christ to me. This is one small example of God being present in the Nazareths of life, by the way. Just ordinary graces like friends, being known by friends and therefore being comforted. God is there in those little moments. So, sisters and brothers, God, God knows you. He knows you. How many of you have heard your entire lives... You got to know God. You know, know God, make him known. You got to study. You got to pray. You got to go to church. You got to do more. Study this. Memorize the scriptures. Know God. Okay, yes, 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 yes. I'm not saying that's bad, of course. In the Christian life, knowing God comes second to being known by God. I mean, look no further than J.I. Packer's words, who ironically makes this point in his book, Knowing God. (laughs) Backer says, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that He knows me. I am graven on the palms of His hands. I am never out of His mind. All my knowledge of Him depends on His sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, as one who loves me. There is no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets at the heart of this idea in a poem, and he wrote this poem from a Nazi prison a year before his execution. His poem is entitled, Who Am I?, and it reflects on the question of identity and how we know who we actually are. Now, the three opening stanzas report kind of pictures of Bonhoeffer's as he sees himself through the eyes of his, his guards, actually, as he sees himself through the eyes of others. And he uses these short lines to evoke the, the atmosphere of like a confined prison cell. So here he is through the eyes of others. He says, Who am I? They often tell me, meaning the guards, others. I step out of my cell composed, contented, sure, like a lord from his manner. Who am I? They often tell me. I speak with my jailers, frankly, familiar and firm, as though I was in command. Who am I? They also tell me that I bear the days of hardship, unconcerned, amused, and proud, like one who usually wins. But then the next two stanzas of the poem shift to his view of himself, which is really in stark contrast to the guard's view of him. It's full of anguish, really. Am I really what others tell me? He asks. Or am I only what I myself know of me, troubled, homesick, ill, like a bird in a cage, grasping for breath, as though being strangled, hungering for colors, for flowers, for songs of birds, thirsting for kind words, for human company, quivering with anger, anxiously waiting for great events, helplessly worrying about friends far away, empty and tired of praying, of thinking, of working, exhausted, and ready to bid farewell to it all. He's hopeless, he's depressed, he's giving up. And then the fifth stanza wrestles with this clash of identities, others' view versus his own anguish. And six times he asks, Who am I? Who am I? This or the other? Am I then this today and the other tomorrow? Am I both at the same time, in public a hypocrite, and by myself a contemptible whining weakling? Who am I? Lonely questions mock me. I think this is the modern struggle for identity that we all to some degree have. Who who am I? Am I like how I perform? Am I what others think? Am I my own sense of kind of how I'm? Well, listen to the final line of the poem, which really settles the question with an abrupt power. Who I really am, you know me. I am yours, O oh God. Who, who I really am, you know me. I am yours, O oh God. Who are you really? You are known fully by God as his beloved child. You are his. That is the truest thing about you. You know, Bonhoeffer's poem, it's like Nathaniel, it's guileless, it's, it's earnest. His situation is like Nazareth, it's humble. He doesn't tweet these words to a million followers from Capitol Hill. He pens these from a prison cell. He's wondering if anyone's going to read them or, or care about them. Surely he couldn't imagine that, that someone many, many years later would be preaching them to his church. But there is one comfort that sustains him in all this humiliation. You know me. I am yours, oh God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we know in part, but one day we will know him fully as we are fully known. Or Jesus put it this way, Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, not too hard in my case. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. In the end, it's being known by God that transforms Nathanael the skeptic into Nathanael the believer. Well, then finally, we come to the last, the fourth movement. And the scene concludes with Jesus' words to Nathanael. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And he added, I will tell you you will see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And what's so interesting here is that the you believe, the singular, turns to a you will see plural. That's why I think the Bible should use Y'all. You believe he's talking to Nathaniel. You will see he looks up and, and is talking to everyone. He's talking to us. Jesus goes from speaking to Nathaniel to all his disciples. And the scene of angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man as the heavens open, it springs from the life of, of Jacob, as we've read. Jacob's on the run from Esau. He's he's deceived his brother, but then he stops at Bethel and he sleeps and he has this dream of a stairway between earth and heaven. And he wakes in awe, and he says, this place is awesome. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he calls it Bethel, which means house of God. Jesus incarnates the dream of Jacob. Jesus is indicating that that is who I am. I am the place heaven and earth intersect. And we join you know, with Nathaniel this morning and getting to, to experience this, Actually. Jesus is this place where heaven and earth are joined together. See last week's sermon. I'm not going to dwell on it extensively this morning. But the simple point is Jesus incarnates this dream, the place where heaven and earth meet. And as we join, how do we, how do we get in on this? Here's what I want to say. This is what church is. I mean, not the building, us as the church. His heavenly presence given to us by his spirits. His heavenly food and drink given to us through the body and blood. His heavenly guidance given to us through his, his words of life. So this morning, we stand on Jacob's ladder, suspended between earth and heaven. That's church. So what's left to do but, but pray? I want to join in the prayer of the, of the psalmist from Psalm 139. You know, like Nathaniel, we have been found by God. You and I have. And we have come into, you know, he has come into the humble places of our lives And he's promised to bring heaven with him. And so we join with the psalmist in praying, Lord, search us and know us. Test us and and know our anxious thoughts this morning. See if there be any offensive way in, in us. And Lord, by your spirit, by your grace, lead us into the way of life everlasting. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.